be able to attend on Wednesday night. I don't know about you, but uh, um, I always feel like I get a, a charge of my battery when I come on Wednesday evening, even though uh, there are days or some Wednesdays. Wednesdays seem to be the hardest. I don't know the energy level, uh, that kind of thing, and uh, I always feel like I've been... Um, um, uh, revved up again so that I can make it throughout the rest of the week. Uh, so I'm certainly glad to to be here. I was asked by Rick that uh, if anyone would like to make a donation for a graduation present for David Chang, then if you will see Rick or Lee Wheat, uh, then they will be happy to take that and put towards a, a gift for him. Where did he graduate from? Freed Hardeman. <clears throat> So if you'd like to participate in that, then please do so. If you didn't already know that tonight is the last night for this class, at least for me teaching it, this is the end of that short quarter, and I'm not even sure what's going to take place next. So anyway, this is will be my last night. Because of those two weeks I was out training and so forth, we're not going to make it through uh, this uh, book in its entirety, but uh, I think we will make it to chapter 5, so we'll see how far uh, that we will get. Let's uh, begin by uh, turning to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to uh, pick up at verse 5, but let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 just so that we have uh, a, a good context for where we pick up. First uh, John chapter 4 Verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come into the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Verse 5 and 6. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. And we are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth not us, hereby we know uh, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Have you ever scratched your head and and, uh, looked around and wondered how come it seems that it's so hard to get our message out, the message of Jesus? The, the gospel and its purity. It seems so difficult to, to have that conversation. It's so difficult to get visitors to come. It's so hard to get the community to want to hear. Um, and yet, it seems so easy. Maybe it, maybe it only seems that way. But it seems so easy for those scam artists, those televangelists on TV, those people really pretending to be preachers, and they seem like they have not a difficult time at all. I have one preacher uh, uh, in Texas that I uh, know of, uh, televangelists and so forth, they actually ended up buying a, a, um, 
a large football, basketball stadium, indoor stadium, and converted that to be their, quote, church building. And they hold worship services in there that holds, what, 10, maybe 20,000 people. Uh, and, and I think they basically fill it up every time. They don't seem to ever have problems getting people to listen. They don't seem to have problems getting people to send the money and so forth. And it, and it seems odd that he, we can't get the, the truth out, and yet so many people are able to, um, uh, to get the ears of those. Um, John tells us here uh, that the false teachers are of the world. The they that is referred to here in verse 5 refers back to those false teachers from earlier in the chapter, which is one of the reasons I wanted to read that entire context. Uh, they are of the world. And because they are of the world, the world accepts what it is that they have to say because their message is more palatable. If you've ever listened to any of these uh, televangelists, these people on TV and so forth, it sounds more like the Oprah Winfrey show than it does a, a, a message from the Bible. Oftentimes I've heard some of these guys, they might reference one passage, uh, obscure passage at the very beginning and never mention any Bible ever after that because it's not a biblical message. They're simply trying to get attention for themselves. Um, the world wants to hear this because it makes them feel good. Isn't that really the problem in so many ways when teaching the gospel? Is the fact that I think that do people in general, and we're just spitballing here, if we were to go and take a poll at the local mall and ask people, do you want a relationship with Jesus? Something obscure like that, but do you want a relationship with Jesus? Not do you want to be associated with a religious group, but do you want to have basically the benefits of God, right? The, the forgiveness of sin and, and being able to pray and, and ask that uh, uh, grandfatherly figure, I think that the world sees him, or that Santa Claus, at being able to ask him and have him flood you with gifts and so forth. If we were to ask people that, I think for the most part we'd find people want that. But they want it on their own terms. They want it as they want it. And, and I think that's why uh, a talk show host that I listen to on a regular basis, oh, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. I certainly believe in God. I, I just don't go to church. I don't, I, I don't get caught up in the organized religion. And she talks about how that she just has her own thing with God. Isn't that really what most people are doing here? And I think that's exactly what uh, what John's talking about here. And it reminds me very much of what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. 
But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. I think people want a feel-good religion. They want to be able to go to one of these auditoriums and they want to hear a message that when they leave, they feel good about themselves. It doesn't matter how hard they're trying. It doesn't matter what sacrifices they're making. It doesn't matter if they're following the will of God, the Bible. It doesn't matter if they know the Bible. It doesn't. None of that matters. They just want to go to a place like that, be seen by other people, and leave feeling good about themselves. Paul warns Timothy... The day is going to come where they're not going to tolerate in, in, uh, uh, a sound doctrine any longer. They're not going to do it. They're going to turn to themselves having itching ears. They're going to be turned to fables, stories, anything that will entertain them rather than doing what they are supposed to do. On the flip side, though, those that know God will hear the truth. And that's what uh, uh, Paul advises Timothy in this passage. Preach the Word. Don't preach your opinion. Don't preach what the crowd wants you to know. I've actually preached uh, several times for three different congregations in the past. And each time I preached, I always had a full-time job. And I like it that way. And one of the reasons I like it that way is because I have, I'm able to have the confidence that I can preach what the Bible says, and if somebody doesn't like it, and I've heard these stories all my life, if somebody doesn't like it and wants to run me out on a rail, fine, I'm not going to lose my income from it. I'll just go right on, find another congregation to worship with, and I'll still have my job. Unfortunately, I think there are some preachers that get that pressure, and they do change that message. But Paul tells him to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove and rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. It's interesting that two of those three things are negative there. We always hear people talking about, well, I want positive preaching. I want to feel good. Paul told Timothy that two of those three things should, uh, are, are negative. Now, I don't think that's a prescription for how we should preach or anything like that. I don't think we should be intentionally negative. We also shouldn't be afraid of those things. So we need to continue to preaching the Word. We have to keep sowing the seed. We have to keep trying. We can't throw up our hands and say, well, it just isn't working. And, and so therefore, we're just going to quit trying. I've seen a lot of congregations that seem to quit trying evangelism. And, and they've turned more to, instead of going out and being fishers of men, they've become aquarium uh, keepers. They want to keep the fish in the bowl happy, if you will. And, and, and they've quit going out preaching the Word. Uh, and uh, I'm certainly thankful for... Uh, worshiping in a congregation, that that is a purpose of this eldership and of this congregation, to be evangelistic. That is our mission. That is our only mission, to go into the world and preach the gospel. It's interesting if you look at the uh, parable of the sower that Jesus uses. Notice how the method in which Jesus illustrates the sower. The sower went out and sowed. 
The sower seed indiscriminately. He threw seeds everywhere. Now, Todd would probably recommend that's probably not a great idea for bringing a harvest, but as it pertains to spreading the word, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Instead, I think we try to be laser-focused with our seeding. We go and spend, uh, I think I heard this in the the, um, uh, Neil's class on Sunday, we have a tendency to go and spend all of our time working with this one person and forget about everybody else, and I'm not going to bother about teaching or having a conversation with anybody else until I deal with this one person. And we get narrowly focused, and we try to uh, uh, deal with that one person to the exclusion of everybody else. If a farmer behaved like that, he would get one plant each year. He certainly wouldn't be able to feed his family. He certainly wouldn't be able to feed America if he did that. The sower went out to sow. And in that illustration we find that the uh, seed fell on four different kinds of soil and only 25% of them, I don't think this is a, a number that we need to use in any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's interesting for, for discussion purposes, 25% of those people, the seed uh, germinated and became a fruitful Christian. So what do we do? Do we just stop? Do we just not spread the gospel anymore. I think we need to always understand that in many ways, evangelism is much like sales. If you know anybody in sales, if you've been in sales, you need to understand that the one thing you need to be good at as a salesman is taking no for an answer. But what you also have to understand is that sales is a numbers game. Sales is a numbers game. That means most salesmen knows their audience, their market well enough that they know that for every, and I don't know, every market is probably different, let's say 10%. For 10% of the time that they pitch their message to a company or to a buyer or whatever the case may be, 10% of the time they will get a sale. So if a salesman wants to increase his salary, what does he need to do? He needs to pitch to more people. He doesn't need to be satisfied with with uh, and and, and maybe uh, spending all of his time trying to increase that to 12% or whatever. He just needs to sow more seeds. If you have to talk to 10 people to get the one sale, talk to 100 people. Talk to 1,000 people. Make those 1,000 pitches so that you can increase the numbers. Isn't that really what we have to do in order to teach the gospel? We need to sow more seed. And we need to sow that seed more indiscriminately. We need to let it fly. And let God do His job in letting it fall in the right places. But we need to let the seed fly. We need to let it go. The point is we need to sow as much seed as we can. And I am thankful for the elders and their direction in wanting to do that at this congregation. Verse uh, 4 through 9. Beloved... Uh, Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that believeth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not uh, knoweth not God, for God is love. And this is uh, uh, this was manifested the love of God towards us, because God sent His only begotten Son in the world that we might live through Him. Several places throughout this book, we've already saw the 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 importance of uh, love, and we're going to talk about that. 
much more in detail later on. Uh, John does repeat his message uh, oftentimes, so let's just uh, move on uh, to verse 10 and 11. Herein is love, that we loved God, but uh, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, as God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We always need to remember that God is the origin of love. He's the definition of love. Uh, we have, as humans, only know love because of God. There's not another animal in creation that knows the concept of love. Not another one. Uh, I, I know there's people who say, yeah, my dog really loves me. He responds favorably to the person that takes care of him. I, you can call that love and that's fine and all, all that, that, that's fine. But in a reality, humans are the only ones that really know the concept of love. We didn't do that ourselves. That didn't evolve over time. The only reason we know of love is because God is love. And we learned that love from God Himself. The key to this verse is that we did not, that love did not start with us. It is a, a response to God loving us and sending His only Son to die on the cross for our sins. Our love uh, to Him did not and could not exist without Jesus dying for us. Uh, if we need more motivation to love one another, we need only to remember Jesus on the cross. Jesus died not because we loved Him, but because He loved us. We did not earn that. We didn't deserve that. I'm always... One of the things about the crucifixion that always gets to me is the trial of Pilate. And I think I've mentioned this before. The trial of Pilate when Jesus is standing next to him and he's asking the crowd, what do I do with this guy? What do you want me to do? And the crowd is yelling, crucify him. And if that was me there, I'd say, these people just don't deserve it. I'm packing it up and going home. But that was exactly why Jesus stayed and did what he did because he loves us. And because of that, if we get confused about why we should love, we should look at the cross. Because Jesus lo loved us, not because we deserved it, not because we were lovable, just because He loved us. Verse, uh, four, uh, verse 12 through 13. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know uh, we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us His Spirit. The concept of seeing God here is uh, dealing with the divine nature of God. Because God is a Spirit, and not uh, doesn't factor in to the physical realm, we are unable to experience Him with our physical sensations, seeing Him and, and all those other things. Uh, but that does not mean that we cannot experience God. Again, not on the physical sins, but uh, if we love, then we uh, ha can have God dwell 
in us. In verse 13, God uh, has uh, given us the Spirit, which is the evidence for us of His love. We know that uh, we receive that uh, that Spirit at baptism. Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight. Then said Jesus, uh, uh, then said Peter unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then the evidence, I think, we find that in uh, Galatians chapter five, verse twenty-two, the fruits of the Spirit, the the evidence, the manifestation of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Those things we are capable of, Christians, because of the Spirit. Because we have this relationship with God. Because of what He's done for us. We're incapable of these things without God. We can look on the news and see the world around us and see the world does not contain these fruits, these characteristics. It requires that relationship with God for those things to happen. Uh, Verse 14, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Even though God cannot be seen, uh, John and the others were able to see Him in in the earthly flesh. And uh, they were able to see really the next best thing to God as we perceive Him because Jesus took the form of the man. And they were able to experience... Remember, Jesus said on several occasions that if you want to see God... Or if you want to experience God, you got to know me. So John was able to experience God by experiencing, by having those day in and day out uh, uh, relationship with Jesus. And, and they personally witnessed the dying of Jesus for our sins and becoming the Savior of the world. Verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God... God dwelleth in him, and he uh, uh, in God. One of the downsides of having a verse-to-verse study, which is that's the way I like to study the Bible in these kinds of classes, you can really dive in, but one of the downsides to having a verse-by-verse study is that it seems like that we pull certain things, and it, and it can seem that it can be pulled out of its context. John here says that whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, God dwells in him. If we take this and isolate it all by itself, then it can seem that we can have a relationship with God just by confessing Jesus. Certainly, that's not the context of which he's talking about. Remember, the underlying context that John is talking about in this book is he's uh, refuting the false teaching, the false teachers, the, the false doctrine of Gnosticism, that Jesus could not have come in the flesh, that God could not have come in the flesh, because flesh is inherently evil, and those two things are, are opposite extremes, so it couldn't be. So, so John is basically uh, saying that part of the identity of being a Christian, part of the characteristic of being a Christian, not the... The, the characteristics in its uh, totality. Uh, 
is that we have to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We have to be able to identify who Jesus is. I think one of the big problems today with much of the religious world is that they don't want to or it's inconvenient for them to have a complete knowledge of who God is. They rather put him in little boxes and so forth because it's easier for them to be able to deal with certain things. But I think it's important that we have an understanding. Uh, there's lots of uh, religious groups that uh, will... It amazes me how that lots of them today do not believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. They completely wipe away Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and so forth, and, and they want to try to mix in uh, religion. They would probably say that God created the heavens and the earth through, say, the Big Bang Theory, and they try to mix them all together. If we try to mix worldly things and worldly ideas and worldly scholarship and worldly concepts and try to mix it together with the Bible, we will always mess up. We, we can't mix those two things together. And, and so if we, if we believe that God did not create the heavens and the earth in six days... We don't have a real knowledge of who God is. We have to have a complete knowledge of who He is in order to be able to have a relationship with Him. God is not one-dimensional. He's not singularly dimensional. He's not uh, two-dimensional even. God is, is vast, and we have to understand all of those nuances about Him. Verse 16 through 19. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may, uh, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Verse 16, known uh, the love of God. We can know the love of God. Each of us have known the love of God because we've been able to experience the forgiveness of sin. We've been able to experience the washing away of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have a personal Knowledge of the love of God. Verse 17, the perfect, uh, of course, does not mean flawless, but rather complete. Biblical, uh, uh, biblical um, uh, perfectness usually means uh, that of being complete. So when, when is our love complete? Uh, when we have the boldness, the confidence and assurance in the day of judgment. God wants us to have confidence. God doesn't want us to cower around and be in fear that every time I, I, I stub my toe and say a curse word that we panic, break out in cold sweats because we're going to go to hell because we made that one sin. Again, I think that is a, that is a, a, a cartoon characterization 
that the world likes to put on to God, that he's uh, an evil puppeteer, that he's just making us dance, that he's, he's looking for opportunities to strike us down, to show his uh, boldness. God doesn't want us to be that way. God wants us to have confidence and assurance. He wants us to be able to go on the day of judgment with boldness. That's not cockiness. That's assurance. Assurance that we are in the love of God. But look at that, um, that uh, second part of verse 17. Because as he is, so are we in the world. I thought about it uh, when I was studying for this, that I need somehow to put that on my computer screen. So as he is, so are we in the world. Is this a description of us? It should be. This should be how we interact with the world. Whatever characteristic it is that we're talking about, the nature of God, Love, compassion, forgiveness, um, uh, the list can go on and on. Those should be the descriptions that fit us as God is, so should we be in the world. As we interact with people on a day-by-day basis, they should see God because of us. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. Not that we should get the praise for it, but when they see, when they see us, they see God. I don't succeed at this very much. But it ought to be our goal. I think this is a, one of those things that's sort of like uh, when John talks about that we should uh, not sin. I don't think that we're ever going to get to a point that we are sinless. That we have perfected ourselves so that we are not capable of sinning any longer. But that needs to be our goal. That needs to be what we strive for. Because if we don't set goals, we'll never reach anything. We'll never, we'll never get off the couch. We'll never go take that first step. But if we set some goals, oh, we might not reach, we may not obtain those goals, but we'll be far better off than if we never set a goal. We will never be sinless. But if we make that our goal, we're going to be far better off than if we never try to attain. This is the same way. We need to go out into the world and be as God is. That's why I want to put it on my computer screen. So I see it every day as I'm working. See it all day while I'm working. As God is, so should we be in the world. And then again, uh, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Sometimes this passage hurts. Do we have fear? Sometimes I do. 
Do we have fear that our sins won't be forgiven? Do we have fear that those weaknesses that all of us have, that we have to guard against, that Satan is always trying to exploit, do we fear that those weaknesses are going to get the better of us and keep us out of heaven? Do we fear that we're not doing enough? Do we fear that we're not the Christian that we ought to be? If you're anything like me, that's not the state that I dwell in. It's the state that I visit some. But that's not who God wants us to be. There is no fear in love. So I think what he's explained to us here is that fear and love are connected. They're the opposite ends of a spectrum. The more, and it's like a sliding scale. All the way, one way is we're 100% love and 0% fear. And on the opposite end, we're 100% fear and 0% love. So how do we make that adjustment? We have to continue building our love. And as we build our love, as we grow in love, then the fear will subside. Fear is always about the lack of confidence, about not being able to handle circumstances. There are times that I fear teaching a class like this more than others. And usually when I fear it the most, it's when I feel less prepared, less confident. When I'm more confident, I feel like I don't have as much to fear from. The love diminishes uh, uh, love dimin- as uh, love diminishes, fear grows. So to diminish fear in our lives, we must grow this love in our lives. Our Christianity needs more love. Remember, biblically, love is not a warm and fuzzy feeling. Love is always defined as action. So to diminish fear and to grow love, we need to simply act more. Actions, and and I think this applies for both our love for God and love for a man. We need to grow our actions in keeping His commandments. We need to grow our actions in refraining from sin. And we need to grow our actions in living a positive life. If we always evaluate ourselves, and I think that's positive from time to time, we should always realize, you know what, I can do a little bit better. I can do a little bit better than I did yesterday. Because if not, we're not growing. And so in each of these ways, we should be able to grow and if we do a little bit more, if we, if we act a little bit more, and we act better than we did in the past, our love will grow and our fear will subside. Same thing applies as it pertains to loving our brethren. Actions toward man. Positive actions towards our brethren. Again, actions. 
not just that warm and fuzzy feelings, but it's getting involved. It's making the phone calls of the people who are not here and should be. It's the people that are sick that uh, that needs encouragement. It's the uh, 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 Sending a postcard, sending a card to someone who is uh, sick or in the nursing home. It's, it's finding those ways that we can act towards our brethren. It's positive actions to those that are in need. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago that oftentimes our policy, personal policy, tends to be that we are certainly willing to be benevolent if somebody comes up and asks us for it, but usually the people that end up asking us are the con men, are the professionals that know how to manipulate you. So we need to be better at acting towards those who are in need that we just notice. We need to be more active uh, in our uh, actions towards our enemies. That's tough. That's tough. But if we want to control the fear in our lives, we need to love more. If we want to love more, we need to act more. The lacking of these actions in our lives may just be the source of the fear in our lives. Verse 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar... For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he that, do, uh, uh, that, he, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. There is a common link in, God, in John's writing throughout this book, a common link between loving God and loving our brethren. We cannot do one without the other. We cannot say that we love God and have a disdain or even a um, souring, if you will, towards our brethren. There has to be that commonality. What is unique about this, um, this text? For he that loveth not his brother, whom he has not seen, how can he love God or who... who For who loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? It is much easier to have compassion, to have empathy for people that are close by. If, If there was a major flood that happened, or some other kinds of disaster that happened in Bowling Green, Kentucky, that happened to our neighbors, we would feel more inspired to go to them and to help them because we can feel it. But if that same disaster happened in the opposite corner of the country, up in Washington, it's a lot easier to turn off that news station and think, uh, sure hope somebody helps them. That's the principle that he's talking about here. How can we ignore our brethren? How can we turn our back on our brethren who we can see, who we should have empathy and compassion for, and turn our back on them? And then say that we love God who we cannot see. Questions or comments before we spend ten minutes in uh, chapter 5? Anybody?
All right, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone, uh, everyone that loveth him, that begat loveth him, also that is begotten of him. But this is, uh, we, uh, but this we know that we have loved the children of God, and that, uh, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Uh, the life of a Christian has interwoven components that cannot be separated. We see this here, um, um, and we truly cannot be faithful without all of these components. It's not a, a buffet where we're all pick and choose. Things like understanding who God is and who Jesus is thoroughly. We talked about that just a moment ago. Loving God, keeping His commandments, loving His children, and living a positive, active life for the, Him. All of those things have to be intertwined in order to be effective. And verse 3 is a greatly overla- uh, overlooked passage in the world of Christendom. Uh, we often hear the calling of uh, obedience as being pharisaical or, or uh, legalistic. But Jesus sees obedience completely different. We must keep his commandments because his commandments are not grievous. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me... Keep my commandments. Jesus described obedience as love in action, as proof of who you are. We cannot be faithful to God. We we cannot claim to be Christians and then look at the Bible and explain away why this doesn't apply to me, why this is obsolete, why this was written by whatever. You've, you've heard all the excuses of why we shouldn't pay attention to certain things. I knew of one guy that basically only believed in the teachings of Jesus. Everything else before that and everything after that, you just got to take with a grain of salt. Pay attention to Jesus. There was a very particular reason why he did that. But Jesus saw it differently. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So many people want to say obedience has nothing to do with salvation. That's not what Jesus our Lord Himself said. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, who is it that, that would claim Jesus as their Lord? It would be religious people. Jesus says not all religious people are going to heaven. Only those that do the will of the Father which is in heaven. But look at the way that um, John uses it in verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not grievous. That word grievous means burdensome. The NIV and ESV uses the word burdensome because His commandments are not burdensome. God didn't just give us a bunch of commands. Here, do this. No, you can't do this. Do all these things because He just wanted to sit up in heaven and laugh at us. Is that the reason for parents and grandparents? Is that the reason you have rules in your house for your kids? 
Do you, do you uh, deny your three-year-old uh, the fun of playing with that glowing red thing in the kitchen uh, uh, because uh, you just don't want them to have a good time? No. We deny them of playing with the stove because we know it will harm them. And we are protecting them. That's who God is. His commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not just busy work. They are there for our benefit. I love the way uh, the psalmist says it in Psalms chapter 1 and verse uh, 2. Remember in verse 1 he talks about blessed is the man. Well, then in verse 2 he says, but his delight, that blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in His law doth He meditate day and night. Again, I think words are chosen. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. What's a law? It's a restriction. A law, you can't drive over 55 on this stretch of road. It's a restriction. You have to restrict your your speed. It's a law. You cannot steal something that somebody else owns. You can't go into a bank and ask for all their money. It's a restriction. It's something you cannot do. Notice what he says. We are to delight in the restrictions that God has set for us. A smart person will look at the laws that God has given us. We may never always understand them completely, but we ought to appreciate them in that somehow, some way, in some realm, God is wanting to protect us from something. And if we're smart, we'll delight in that law. First uh, four and five, and we'll finish up. For whosoever, uh, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. As Christians, this is one of our goals, to overcome the world, to, uh, to keep from loving the world, and to have the world influence us. Remember Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. We're not to be conformed, molded, manipulated by the world. Overcoming it is understanding it doesn't have the same influence on us that it once might have. By keeping His commandments, by always looking at the commandments and seeing and appreciate that they're there for our benefit, in the same way that Jesus was able to thwart the advances of Satan in those three temptations, He was able to do that by saying, it is written. By keeping the commandments, by knowing the commandments, by appreciating those commandments, we can overcome the world and the stand fast being a Christian. Thanks so much for your good attention.